You guys are used to seeing uh, Lucas up front, um, but Maria is also really gifted in leadership, and it's fun to see her um, come up and share. So I am, I'm going to teach on this passage, and we're pretty much going to stick here. Uh, so you'll see it on the screen. You're welcome to look on your phone if you'd rather do that um, and follow along. And then there's only really two times that I'm going to switch out and go uh, to the Old Testament. And if we have time, we'll go into Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. So there won't be a lot of jumping around. Um, they'll just be mainly staying on this passage and then maybe dipping into the Old Testament as we have time. And then um, there are a few kids in here. I would just uh, encourage you to, to think of it this way. The big problem that the disciples had was the thing of expectations. So here's, it's, a, it's not a perfect story for this, but it'll get the idea down. As a kid, um, imagine you're nine and it's summer and your and your dad's home from work, and your and your mom's home from work, and they say we're going swimming today in about an hour or two. So you know that you get ready to swim. You get in the car. You got your bathing suit on. You're kind of in the back of the van, and you're riding along. But you pass the pool, and you start to get kind of upset because you're not going to the pool where you thought that you were going to swim. And they drive a half an hour further to this beautiful place up in the mountains, and it's a natural pool in the rock, and the waterfall's falling down, and um, people are splashing and having fun, but you can't enjoy it because you're so locked in on the pool and how you were going to try to jump off the diving board and do a real dive that day, and that you had just discovered that the snack shop sells french fries, that you couldn't enjoy the waterfall and the rock that was, everyone was sitting on. You thought, oh, I like the concrete better. I just, you know, I know what I'm doing, and you just can't enjoy the day. And I don't know if you guys were like this. As a kid, I was capable of kind of getting in a mindset or a mood uh, around family gatherings or outings if they weren't where I thought they'd be, and I'd be kind of stuck in it. And then that impedes your ability to appreciate what's going on. So that concept is what we see in these two disciples as they go forward. So let's go ahead and um, pull the passage up, if you don't mind. And what I'm going to do is just go through and just encourage you as well to pick up some observations. Uh, we've spent time in our life group reading through the, um, some of the resurrection stories and some of the things that happened afterwards. And we have a lot of kids in our life group. And I, I, there was an insight that one of the kids had that I had never thought of. So as we look at this passage, there are things that can come up that maybe you've never seen before or I've seen before. But it's a unique passage. Why? Because it's one of our longest um, descriptions of a time where Jesus is post-resurrection. It's at least, I'm guessing, an hour to maybe three-hour thing. It's the first day. It's, it's Easter. It's the first Easter Sunday. In my opinion, the most important day of all days. And we have this glimpse of two witnesses who are able to talk about a big chunk of it. So the road to Emmaus is one of the jewels of the Scripture, and we really need to take as much out of it as we can. And there's no way I'm going to pull enough out of it today. But I would just encourage you to see it that way. So here's just a basic layout. Obviously, um, it's Easter Sunday, and um, we can go, let's see, well, let's go up to the, can you fast forward up to verse 13, um, Luke 24, 13, so that's on there. Where are we? Oh. 
Sorry, maybe back one. Sorry about that. I should have the clicker up here. So they're heading out to this village called Emmaus, and it's, they say it's seven miles, you know, so you can imagine hour, two hour, two hour walk at least that they're heading, and they're talking as they go. Um, and it says, and you can script to the next room, it says, while they conversed and reasoned. So that's kind of what they're doing. That's where it starts. They're conversing and reasoning. And uh, they're heading home. So you can guess, it's an assumption, and some of what I will say will be assuming. I'm assuming that if they were willing to walk that far, they probably got there for the Passover. So they were probably at least there, you know, Good Friday, the day before. There's a really good chance that these two were there the Sunday before when Jesus came in with this triumphal entry. So they've probably been there for at least three days, maybe a week. And what else we can know about them is that uh, they're, not in the, they're not one of the 12, but they're definitely in the group because you'll notice throughout the passage they start saying we and us, and then they at the very end go back to the disciples and the disciples let them in. So they weren't just random strangers that were around. These were somewhere in the group of pretty steady followers of Jesus. So they're, um, they're heading home, they're conversing, and they're, they're reasoning, and then Jesus shows up, and he's walking alongside of, of them. They were so into their conversation, they, they didn't notice how he came up, but he's up with them, and it says something right in the middle. It says, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And I don't know how this happened. Were they uh, just kind of blinded a little bit or clouded over or did Jesus look different? Whatever it was, they didn't know what was going on. And so one of the things that I take away personally, and I I try to draw some ways in which Jesus might be talking to me, that I converse and reason a lot. And particularly having gone through this COVID season, we're taking a lot of information in and then we're talking about it with our household and then reasoning through what needs to happen. It's it's a common occurrence, especially if you're parents. Uh, we have five kids. There's a lot of conversing with my wife, Kirsten, and reasoning what we should do, plans with school or in the house or whatever. So that's a pretty normal process that God wants us to do it. He gave us minds to do that. But one of the challenges is we don't see everything. And so one thing I take away from this is that however it was in the a rare time between after Jesus rose from the dead and before he ascends. So I don't want to extrapolate principles that have to say he does this anymore. But at least once, he limited some people from seeing him as he was. And so, by connection, I need to keep in my mind some humility as I look at other people. Because we are trained, I went through college and got a master's degree and everything. I'm trained to analyze. And reasoning and conversing, I need to keep in the balance of the fact that God has not shown me everything, particularly when it comes to other people. And then particularly if you're a parent, maybe coming to your your children. And I'm just recognizing that more and more I've got to step back and realize I don't see the whole picture with this person or with this ministry or whatever. And If you find coming to your mind when you see someone, well, that person just needs to do such and such, or yeah, they're great, but they need to do this, or yes, that's a great ministry, but it needs to do this, this, and this, that we can become a little bit too much on the rationalization and the, the, you know, kind of 
scrutinizing and analyzing people and works of God. And one of the stories that helps balance me in that is um, the story that you may have heard me tell or someone else tell. There was a guy, this is back, and I'm old enough to remember the records, um, Simon and Garfunkel record I had and everything. There's a few thumbs up, but hopefully not too many. Um, and uh, I dragged my parents to a Simon and Garfunkel concert because I couldn't get anyone else to go with me. But anyway, I remember the records. And there was this guy who his job was to listen to the records and for the final production, and then he would release it. So he's listening for what he called skips. He was at a party one time, and, a, and people came up to him and started talking. They said, you have got the most awesome job in the world. You just sit around and listen to music all day. And he said, well, I haven't heard music in a number of years. I just hear the skips. So one of the warnings I take away from this is just to be careful about what my thinking and rationalization and analytical thing, I don't want to become the kind of person who just hears the skips. When I look at people or at ministries or at governments or whatever, I do not want to be just a skip hearer, and it's possible. All right, so Jesus joins them, and he, um, you know, he, he's asking them kind of what they're talking about and what kind of conversation is that you're having, okay? And, and are sad. So I want to note this in case I forget to say it later. Their reasoning got them to be sad. They thought so much that they're sad. It is the happiest day in the history of the universe, and these guys are sad because they reasoned themselves out of, later we'll read, they've already been told that some of their intimate group has gone to the tomb, Jesus is not there, and they've had a vision of angels who said he's alive. But they reasoned their way out of staying in Jerusalem. What was it that if they really had believed Jesus had risen from the dead, what task was so necessary in Emmaus that you would leave Jerusalem if you really believed that? Think about it. Because at the end of the story, they run back. I mean, what was it? I've got to, like, go to work next morning? Or, or I told you, certainly if there was family at home, they would have understood the next day when they said, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. That's why I didn't come home last night. Whoever their loved ones were would have gotten that. But they reasoned their way out of walking in the wrong direction. They like, well, you know, they astonished us. We'll get to this. The women astonished them. And they said all this, angels appeared to them, and they thought, I don't, I don't know, I think I got to head home for work, or I left the dog outside, you know, there's, I, I got to get back, uh, oil change in the car and stuff. I mean, what were they thinking? They left, they reasoned their way out of it. And you also see something about Jesus. When he comes up, he asks questions. The power of the question is key in discipleship. It is key. And he knows that to educate people, you need to ask them questions to find out what they're thinking before you back up a dump truck and dump information on them. Access to information does not equate to wisdom for living, necessarily. So a good teacher will assess through questions exactly where his students are, because if you get too far ahead of them, they glaze over. And if you're teachers, you've seen it. And if you've ever been a kid, 
in a class, like particularly for me, like a math or a chemistry class, and I start to get that look because they're just too far ahead of me. They didn't build off of what I knew and understood. They got like eight steps ahead of me. So a good teacher and a good parent, and we need to educate by asking questions. It's like regular soundings as to where they are. So Jesus models that for us. And he says, you know, we ask them, what are you doing? And basically, why are you sad? And we learn one of their names. And then Jesus, um, the Cleo, Cleopas goes off and says, are you the only one who doesn't understand this? So you can um, go ahead, one more screen. You didn't know what was going on? So again, Jesus asks, what things? So you could imagine, you know, was, it seems a little deceptive on Jesus' part. What things? I mean, you were there. But he doesn't because he's interested in teaching people how to think, not just what to think. So he's trying to draw them in because he wants them to see something first. They obviously missed the whole concept that he's about to introduce. So you can skip to the next one. They, they talk about him being a prophet, mighty indeed, and word. And, um, and then chief priests, we know all that stuff. Um, but here it is, the bottom line, but we were hoping that it was he, and you can turn it, uh, who was going to redeem Israel. So they were hoping something. It's a good thing. It's definitely in the scriptures. It's proclaimed throughout the Old Testament about this king that's going to come. It's not unbiblical. It was just unbalanced thinking. So if we're in a conversation like, I'm right about this. I know I'm right. About it. it might be not that you aren't right. It's just that you're not balanced in what you've reasoned here. So I'm going to camp out on this concept. Um, we had hoped. And so one of the things that the Lord has taught me, I became a believer at age 20. It was at the end of my college time. So I didn't have a real grid for, um, and it still happens to me. I'll go to some churches and, and teach, and they'll pull out one of those old familiar hymns, and I have no idea what it is. I didn't sing it. Um, so I didn't grow up in the evangelical faith. So when I became a believer at age 20, I was super excited. I, I was all lit up about just what life was about. And, um, but I didn't, hadn't had time to develop any hopes. It was just pure faith in Jesus. I was excited that there were believers out there and um, excited about, you know, even the hope of resurrection and stuff. But I hadn't had any hopes. But then I noticed as two or three or four years went, some hopes that I had about the kind of life Jesus would give me started to wrap themselves. Imagine that the, a tree is Jesus, faith in Jesus. And I, you know, I've got a few trees in my woods um, that a vine has wrapped around the tree so much that you can't quickly distinguish between the tree and the vine. And those hopes can be like that vine that wraps around the tree of the faith of Jesus, and it actually blinds you to Jesus. And this is what happened to these guys. They had reasoned, and they talk about it. Their hope was he was going to redeem Israel. That hope had wrapped around so much that they couldn't believe that he was actually risen from the dead. It got in the way. So my pause point is just to ask you guys, as I asked myself as I prepared this message, what hopes have kind of wrapped themselves around my faith in Jesus? Hopes of life turning out a certain way or certain things not happening. Um, you guys have probably taken risks for the Lord to try to start something. Maybe you've stepped up in ministry and it just didn't work out. Or you were really engaged, and now it seems like the cards turned against you, and you're not doing it. Or 
a relationship didn't turn out like you like or someone that you love and have invested in, they didn't turn out, and you, your hopes for how that person would turn out or that relationship or that ministry or that career or that, you name it, got wrapped around your faith in Jesus to the point where you got blinded. So that's like a personal concept to keep in mind. Okay, so then um, this part here, you know, that we already talked a little bit about the, the women in the company going, and you can, you can flip it to the next one, and astonished us. Um, they didn't find their body. Okay, so this is, this is the good news. And, um, and then you can flip to the next one because we already talked about this. Okay, so uh, then he says, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. These are not the Pharisees. Jesus has, uh, there are times where he just, blasts religious leaders with the same kind of tone in a way, foolish ones. But these are not those people. These aren't even the the 5,000 that were on the edge of things. These are people who are in kind of the inner circle, not the most inner, but definitely the inner circle. And they want to believe, I mean, they, they just listed, they thought he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. I mean, these are not people that were calling out to him in the crowd trying to test him. These were people that were sitting there taking notes. But yet they are still called foolish ones. They weren't thinking correctly and slow of heart. It's not a phrase we would use, but try to get into that phrase a little bit. Slow of heart. Uh, you know, I, I can, I'm somewhat reserved just with emotions, and a really joyful moment can happen, and I am often slow to jump into it, where I see other personalities that are just jump into the moment. And being slow of heart is a little more guarded. And it, it, it apparently not, you know, you're supposed to definitely guard your heart scripturally and be wise as to what you give it to, but that's not always. When it comes to the things of God, we're supposed to be quick of heart. And so there are things that I need to pray through that may be blocking my ability to be quicker of heart, quicker to love, quicker to forgive, quicker to hope, quicker to pray, quicker to, you could put in your own there. But Jesus is calling these two devout disciples foolish and slow of heart. When we think of faith in Jesus, there's obviously, like I just shared, I had a very dramatic moment of coming to faith. It's not the same for everyone. I remember it was August 6th, and I remember what time of night it was when I came to faith. You may have had a different experience, but this is talking about the process of walking with Jesus, and you can still be foolish and slow of heart, even at age 62, with 30 years of following Jesus, or at age 25, or at age 12. Jesus wants to get in there and change our thinking and help us to be quicker of heart. And then he says right at the beginning, he starts this, ought not the Christ, and you can flip it, have suffered these things to enter his glory. I don't want suffering. I'm against the concept personally. I just really don't enjoy it. And I, you know, had God done the right thing and said, come to me before he started this whole human thing, there's a couple things I would have pulled out. This would have been one of them, the suffering. But he didn't ask me. And he says, ought not the Christ to have suffered? And I, um, my son Levi came up, and how many of you have seen the movie The Passion, the one that's in Aramaic, right? It's a little intense, or a lot intense. Well, my son Levi came home, um, 
our son Liam, he lives in Charlottesville. You may not have seen him as much. He used to play the violin. And then we had Emma was singing right here. Then Levi's the next one. He comes home. He says, Dad, in the middle of the day on Easter, I want to watch The Passion. And I thought, okay, it's kind of like a downer a little bit. So I wasn't in that mood. But I listened to my son, and we did it. And what it reminded me of, you know, and obviously there's some interpretation in there, but at least it brought to my attention that maybe the whips and the thorns and all that was actually worse than the crucifixion. I don't know how it hit you guys, but the, when I thought about just how much Jesus was whipped, actually when he got to the cross, at least they were leaving him alone, you know? At least he was just up there. Why did he, I got the cross part, I mean, the brutal as it is, but the, why the stuff before? He didn't ask me, but it was necessary and suffering is a part of the human experience that is good for our souls, and it was ought not the Christ to have suffered. So when we have suffering, there is some purpose to it, even if I never in my lifetime here understand it. I've got to trust that this is what God has in front of me. It doesn't mean I don't take, you know, an ibuprofen or something, but it does mean that this is part of the lot of life. There's going to be some suffering in it. And so he goes through the prophets, and I'll, um, I'll note two of them. You can turn there if you want. When he goes through and explains it, a couple things I pick up. One, there's value in the Old Testament. And to be honest, when I first became a believer, I had a hard time with some of the Old Testament. I just did. And it took a while till I could learn to appreciate it. But here's Jesus after he's died, after he's risen again, and he's pulling out the Old Testament. So I've learned that there's gold in there, and I need to learn how to dig for it. And that's what Jesus does. And, and it talks about, he starts with Moses and all the prophets. That covers pretty much it. And there were two of them that I picked up, uh, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, that, that I'm not saying he chose them, but they were big ones. And um, just, for, just so you can hear a couple of the verses, Psalm 22 when Jesus is up on the cross, he says, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's line one of Psalm 22. So even the Pharisees would have memorized the Psalms. And in our culture, sometimes we have movies. And I don't know if you've ever been in a group, I do this. Like I'll, I'll say a line from a movie, and then the people that get it, like uh, say the next line or the first word of a song. Well, back then, they would have had the Psalms, and they would have known them. They were, they were much more into Scripture memory than, than we are. So when Jesus was up on the cross and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Their minds would have gone to the rest of the Psalm. And these are some of the things in there. One of the lines, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. They have pierced my hands and feet. The Psalm was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was a popular form of execution. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those who wanted to could follow down that scripture and look at what was happening in front of them all the way down to verse 18, Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's all happening right in front of you, and it's Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. By, our, um, by his stripes we are healed. 
and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. Even that happens. So there were passages in the Old Testament that explained exactly what happened that day. And the suffering was the part they missed. And I probably would have missed it too. But he does mention it in Luke that he's going to die, he's going to be killed, he's going to be rejected, and then he's going to rise again on the third day. It's, It's in there. But these two might not have been there the day that he said it. All right, well, let's flip ahead. Um, to the next part. So then they're going near the village. So I love this picture because you can see it. The, the, the scriptures to me, the authenticity, so many of the things that happen in there, I think, yes, that would have happened. I can get that. They're drawing near the village. It says he indicated that he would have gone further. I, I, I pause there and I think, does that mean that had these two guys not invited him in, that he would have walked on? It seems by the plain reading of Scripture that that's what this says. The power of the invitation, at this moment, he's talked to them. They've had an hour or two or three with him. They still don't know who he is. They obviously know that he's wise and that he's receptive to the things of Jesus, even if they don't think he's Jesus himself. So there's a connection there, and yet they don't know who he is, and he could have walked on. Why God leaves that kind of moment up to two humans is beyond me. Why he allows us not to invite him in is beyond me. But what I draw from that is that he is a God that we invite him into our hearts as we come to faith, but there's a process of invitation that is going on during the rest of our years here on earth that we have a part in. So I am thinking, Lord, am I inviting you in to these important areas of my kingdom, my family, or what we're doing in Mexico, or our house, or any of those things? Am I inviting the Lord in or not? So um, they invite him in. They ask him to stay. You can go ahead and flip it to the next one. So we know it's at the end of the day, you know, evening time. It would be logical to them kind of go out. They would look at him and think, oh, we don't, we don't want this guy to sleep on the road. So they bring him in. Um, and, and he sits down, and he takes bread and blessed it, and he gave it to them. And it says, then their eyes, go ahead, um, flip it one more time, were open. So I don't know exactly how this played out. Uh, one commentator I read said, maybe when he reached for the bread, they may have seen the nail prints. I don't know. One way or the other, they, they come to it, and he disappears. God has the power, at least this time, to limit what we see, limit what two humans saw, and then open their eyes to see things as they really were. I asked the Lord, would you open my eyes to see situations the way they really are? We have a God who brings light. He's, he's the light of the world. Can, does he still bring light into my life here in Madison Heights, Virginia? Does he bring light into your life? Are you regularly asking him to come in and shed light to see this events and people as they really are? And then you can turn it uh, one more time. All right, so then they're talking about how um, their hearts burned. And again, I, I'm not a super feeling person, 
But when, um, how many of you, a lot of you, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but a lot of you were out there last Sunday when we were around the cross. Now, the plan was just to um, have like us two or three songs, because we had two sound systems, one, three, one in here, one outdoor, and we met, um, and this is just the power of asking and listening. I'll give you like a little insight to it. Some of us met together to talk about how to do Good Friday. We sat out in the lobby. We talked it through. And one of those people was Holly Torrance. You've seen her mostly connected with the Cypress. Well, I've known her since she was 12. And she doesn't say much. But I learned when she speaks to listen. And so we were there. And I think the only thing she said the whole night was, we should flower the cross by the road. That's it. She's very concise with her words. We did it. And my family was coming up to the cross at the moment that she was coming up to the cross. And there were hands reaching around. And I, I, whisked, I looked at her and I said through the arms, I said, is this what you saw? And she said, yes. So we are, that's just an example of listening and responding, uh, even within our own body. Had she not spoken up and we as a group not listened, we wouldn't have had that experience out there by the road. And people didn't leave. I don't know if you were there. It went on and on and on. Lucas and, and the worship team, Charity, how long, how many songs do you think you sang? I mean, you guys went for what, two hours of worship if you add everything up, right? But it was cool. It was alive. And I remember being in the midst of it, feeling this kind of like heart-burning excitement, like this is what worship should be. We were right by the road. I mean, we're standing on gravel. It was not ideal. But it was wonderful. It was alive. And God reaches into us and sometimes opens up the heart that way. All right, you can flip to the next one, and I'm going to close our time. All right, so then they run back, and they, uh, they tell the disciples, and they get confirmation. He's also appeared to, to Simon, and that he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, um, obviously, there's a connection with communion. I don't think that he necessarily did communion at that m moment um, with those two. But, but the breaking of the bread is just a common everyday occurrence. And if you think about Jesus, he reveals himself at, like, if I were his um, promotional team, I'd be talking to him. Because he does some of his biggest things at the wrong place and to a very small crowd. And one of his most extensive discussions about being the Messiah is with the woman at the well. I would say, Jesus, you did a lot of prep there. Let's do that one at the temple. I, I would have said, okay, Jesus, this is day one. Uh, there's a lot of people who think you're dead. You've got this really good speech about the, I mean, really good. I can see you've worked on it. Uh, Moses and all of you, this is great stuff. I wouldn't waste it on these two guys because they're not that sharp. I would, it's the first day, you know, let's go to the temple. Let's, let's get a mic out there. Let's get some handouts. Let's clear things up right now. But Jesus decides to reveal himself to these two in this very basic thing like breaking bread. That's the kind of Messiah that we follow. Someone that comes into our everyday life, gives value to the most basic things like sitting at a table and getting water, and he reveals to those whom he wants to reveal the truth. And we can be 
people like that as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I pray as we study it more, as people look at it, you would bring even more to light than what we're able to cover this morning. We thank you for this church. I thank you for the way that we've made it through this season and that we have come to love you more and more. I pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you fill us with joy. May we not be foolish nor slow at heart, and may we rejoice in the truth that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.